0: Let me ask you a couple of questions. Question number one, have you ever failed? Question number two, has someone ever failed you? Right, family, work, friends, whatever it might be, spouse. Okay, third question. Has a church ever failed you? Yeah. I'll have people that will come and they'll introduce themselves to me and they'll say, hey, I went to so-and-so church and over there, the pastor or the elder or leaders or people there, they failed me. So I'm here. I say, well, welcome. Glad you're here. But I'm just going to tell you this. We're exactly like the church you left. Exactly the same, just a different location. (laughs) We're broken people. And sometimes our brokenness breaks other people. It happens. Okay. So Why do churches fail people? Bad doctrine, that can hurt. I've seen bad doctrine hurt people really bad. Bad leaders, right? Character issues, sin, right? Those those things will cause churches to fail people. But can you have a church fail and for the leaders to be godly and the doctrine to be right and there to be no sin? Can a church still fail and be doing those things right? I think so. Welcome to Acts chapter six. So here, I'm gonna catch you up. The church has gone from 11 to 120 to 3,000 to over 10,000. It's probably in Acts six, five years old. So it's a kindergartner in maturity. Do kindergartners fail? Oh my goodness. (laughs) Their lives are littered with failure, okay? Has Edgewater Christian Fellowship as a church failed? Yes but it was a long time ago when we fixed it perfectly. So, Okay, so five-year-old church, been growing, 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 and here's what happens, verse one. Now in those days, Acts 6-1, when the disciples were increasing in number, couldn't find a parking spot, parked down at 7-Eleven, wondered why, and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So here, the book of Acts, written by a doctor named Luke. And here's what Luke does. He's not in the story yet. He comes about over halfway through it. So he has gone out, And he has been interviewing eyewitnesses, talking to people that were in the early church, finding little manuscripts that had been written out. And he's putting them all together to make a story of the early church, the first 30 years. And what happens during this movement is he finds out this story of how the church fails. Like everyone knows about it. I love that. Church failure, totally known about like brilliantly known about. So he decides to record it about how this group of Hellenists who almost divided the church and destroyed it and formed their own little church, this group of Hellenists had this issue and it threatened the very existence of the early church. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at what happened, what the leaders did and the results. So number one, what happened? And I think if you are a leader and in the business... If you're a parent, you wanna know how to go through failure well? Right here to me is the manuscript. Just read this over and meditate on it. What they do is brilliant, okay? So number one, here's what happens. It's the first one. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Now they would have known immediately all the background to these two groups. I'm gonna to have to fill you in. So Israel, the history of Israel, is marked by being conquered. They're conquered by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, by the Medes and the Persians, by the Greeks and by the Romans. And when those attacks would happen, very often part of the population would be carted off to Assyria or to Babylon or to Greece. And when those populations were carted off, some of the population would stand strong and stay Hebrew. The way they dress, the way they spoke, the way they acted, they held strong to their convictions. They stayed Hebrew. But other parts of that congregation or that crew that had been conquered and taken to Babylon or Assyria or into Greece, they would adopt the culture, the talk, the language, the dress of that city. And so they would look very much like the city. So that's the Hellenists. They have adopted the ways of the Greeks, okay? So it's like this. Let me try to bring it down to our level. So every fall we do this. We send our, br- our best and our brightest, we send them off to Portland, All right? So you have a son or you have a friend, they go to Portland. And sometimes you'll have one that goes to Portland and then when they return, they have maintained their Southern Oregon identity. They still drive a big truck. They still ride motorcycles, they still go out into the woods and they burn random things just because they can. They eat Hamburger Helper out of a big aluminum pot just with a wooden spoon, a stick with their own hand. It does not matter. I am an Oregonian, a Southern Oregonian, right? And you're like, yeah, you maintain, bro. But others will go to Portland. And then when they return, they've changed. They sold their big truck. They bought a Subaru with a coexist sticker on it. Comes mandatory, right? Right? You take them out to eat and they order vegan. You're like, you're a vegan now? Yep. And while you're waiting, they knit you a pair of socks. You're like, dude. You're like, bro, what the Hellenist happened to you? (laughs) You sold out, man. Okay, that's in these two groups. So the Hebrews are standing with their arms crossed, looking at the Hellenists, just saying, you guys are sellouts. You didn't maintain your identity. You left it right? This exists way before the church. Church ignites, both groups get saved, they come in together, and now the same problems they had in the city are brought into the church. Their cultural issues, their division, their, hey, you guys are sellouts, hey, you guys are too strict, whatever it is. So now they're in the church. A healthy church recognizes the different cultural groups that will be in their city and then does everything that they can to alleviate the perception that exists outside the church. That's what a healthy church does. That they know, hmm, they're gonna bring these things in. We better be careful about them, okay? And church should look just like the culture and city that they work with. It should not be homogenous. Right? It shouldn't be just one type of person. If you look at a church, you should say, the church looks exactly like the city that it's in. Demographically, every way possible. It's one of the things that I love about Edgewater. We look just like the city we're in. And I love that. So there, I told this to Wednesday. It was from Acts chapter where you have all these different groups of people. There's about 12 different mentioned and they all get saved together from Rome all the way to Egypt, like just massively different groups of people all come together. I said, that's what church is supposed to be. Just this mixture and it's brilliant and beautiful and strong when it's that way. So I said, I love looking out on a Sunday, seeing out in the congregation, a guy I know is just getting off drugs because there are people on drugs in our city. And I want to see them saved and getting off drugs. I love seeing him just sitting there and he can't sit still. He's fidgeting. He's all over the place. He's just, you know, going through what happens when people get off drugs. And he'll be sitting right next to Mr. CEO business, dude, who's just stiff as a statue. (laughs) And then every once in a while, I'll just see that guy kind of reach over. Oh, my wallet's still there. Good. Oh, right. That's healthy. Healthy church. We should look just like the community we serve. If you become homogeneous, something's wrong because at the end, it says this, every tribe, every tongue, every nation is gonna be gathered around the throne of Jesus. That's the way eternity is gonna look like. So they've got both groups in there. And then here's what happens. While they go in line to get their food, maybe because of perception, maybe because of history, now hundreds of years of history, that as they're getting food in line, they're like, man, Peter gave the Hebrews a lot more food than than he gave the Hellenists. Man, he gave her two scoops and only gave me one scoop. Man, they ran out of food when I was coming through line. So there starts this kind of drumming like, the same thing that's happened to us outside in the city is now happening to us inside the church. And they start to, it says, complain. Do you know what complaining is, murmuring is? It's talking to someone who's unable to solve the problem. That's what complaining is. You're sharing with somebody that, that can't do anything about it. That's complaining and murmuring. And here's why it's so damaging. You only hear half the story. It'd be like this. It'd be like going to a court case and then being on the jury. And the only one that gets to speak is the prosecutor. Like the prosecutor presents his case, lays out all the evidence and the defense get, doesn't get to say anything. What's gonna happen every time to the jury? Guilty. That dude's guilty, man. Why? Because they only heard half the story. So when when somebody brings their complaint to you, it's they're the prosecutor, and you're only getting that side of the story. And so everyone's like, guilty. That person's a moron. She's an idiot. He's a whatever, right? Because you get half the story. It's so damaging. It's like this. This is so important. I'm going to give you a different illustration. Let's say you are. You're walking along and you're walking east. I don't know if this is east. Actually, I am the pastor. This is east now. <laughs> oh man, I'm so bad. I should really keep, those are not in my notes. And whenever it's not in my notes, it's bad. So you're walking east. I don't know what east is and I don't care. So east, you see a house. It's brown. Someone asks you, what color is that house? Brown, okay, you got a friend. He's coming. West, this way's west, west, he's coming west and he sees the house and it's white. So people ask him, what color is the house? He says, it's white. Who's right? Who says they're both right? Raise your hand, wrong. (laughs) The house is not brown and the house is not white. The house is brown and white, both are wrong. There's only one right answer and it's brown and white. Until you know the whole, you don't know the truth. That's what complaining does. You don't know the whole. Until you know the whole, you don't know the truth. It's listening to a prosecutor only and not getting the defense. It is damaging to relationship, to family, to kids, to spouses, to work, to church, to every avenue. And so Jesus says this, this is the command of Jesus. Matthew 18, he says, listen, if you got an issue, you first go to that person. So if somebody wants to complain to you about something, as a Christ follower, your first question should be, have you talked to him about that? Have you talked to her about that? No, I haven't. You know, it's, it's complicated. I'll make it real simple. Don't talk to me about it then until you talk to her about it, until you talk to him about it. I'll simplify it. Because anything outside of that, it's complaining and murmuring and it's gonna divide and break the church. Don't do that, right? And then if they don't receive it, Jesus says, okay, that's great. Get a friend, bring a buddy. Then you come talk to me and bring me. And I'll try to help and try to mediate that. And if it still doesn't happen, then you get the church involved. That's what Jesus says; that's his commands. And it keeps that prosecutor that we all wanna be at times from instantly having a guilty jury. Number one, talk to the person. Number two, bring somebody. Number three, bring it to the church. Okay, so you got this complaint. You got this thing, now it's starting to possibly divide the church. This is what's happened. So what do the leaders do? Now remember, these leaders never repent. There's not sin involved. There's not character issues. These were chosen by Jesus. These are good dudes. There's not a doctrinal issue. They're writing the Bible. This is a mistake. And watch and see how they walk through this mistake because I think as a leader, as anything, as a human, you should say, this is the way to do it, okay? So watch this. Number one, Chapter six, verse two, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. Number one, they listened publicly. They didn't tell the people, hey, that's stupid, be quiet. Hey, there's no way that's happening. They didn't sweep it under the rug. Hey, be quiet. They said, great, great question, great thing. Let's grab all the believers that love Jesus. Hey, tonight we're meeting because we've heard about something. So we're gonna publicly listen to this. I think great leaders always listen to people and their perceived or real problems, whatever it is. Hey, got an open door to that. So I'd ask myself about Edgewater, do we listen well? Do we hear well? And my answer in my own thinking is not really, probably not. And that kind of saddens me. No, there, there is a, um, a disconnect when you have two campuses and then I'm, I'm bouncing back and forth. So, so I'm gone for three of the services. There's no way people can talk to me in those three services. I'm, I'm moving, right? So, so that's gonna be a problem. Um, so, so I've always wanted this. I, I've always wanted like after the last service to have Q&A. So half an hour after the last service, hey, we're doing Q&A. If you have questions, if you have issues on the message or anything, it's open house on that. I would love to do that, but you can't do it here because we have doorkeepers like here at seven in the morning to set this place up And I don't want to keep them any longer. We got to tear it down. We got to get out of here. So we got those kind of pressures. I think, ah, that's not healthy, right? And then even after the fourth service, I've told my wife this, you know, after I preached four times, after 11 o'clock, I feel like, here's what I feel like. I feel like that, everyone has it, the dried out sponge in the kitchen that's above your sink. You know the one? The one you'll moisten up with a little bit of water and you'll wipe your kid's cheek with it. So they smell like compost all day, but they're clean. They're like, what's that stench? your mom cleaning with that old sponge, you know? I mean, that's what I feel like. There's nothing left to me, right? So even at the floor, like, Ugh. But I think, man, maybe in the building, we're gonna start doing something where it's once a month or maybe every Sunday after service, it's Q&A time with the leaders and elders or pastors or hood of Edgewater just to publicly be listening. I've thrown out to the elders this idea, like we should have once a month an open elders meeting where it's just gonna be in our little office. Whoever wants to come can come. And you can listen and see what we're doing. We're not, we're, nothing's hidden. Because as leaders, I think you should always have an open door policy. Now, those are all possible. But I thought what I could do right now is this. Give a bulletin. On the backside of your bulletin is a survey. And that survey is trying to open the door to, hey, we wanna listen, and see if we are actually accomplishing some of the stuff we really want to accomplish. Because maybe we're not, and if we're not, we better go back and revisit our methods to see if there's a better way to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish. So we're asking that you fill out that survey. Not now, I will watch you. (laughs) Fill it out at some point, you can bring it back next week, you can fill it out after service, put it in the basket. And it's our way of doing a little bit of, we should be doing more of this, listening publicly like they did. That's the first thing they do. Number two. They get back to their priorities. Listen to this, it's very important to hear what they're actually saying. They say this, it's not right that we give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. They were at a blockage now. It's one or the other. So five years into this church, you have the apostles doing everything The prayer ministry, they're taking people up to the temple to pray at the hours of prayer. They're doing evangelism. They're doing discipleship courses. They're writing the Bible, really important thing. They're preaching the word. They're dealing with widows. They're dealing with kids. They're doing it all, right? And they come to a head here and they realize we can't keep doing everything. At this point, for us to add something more means something we're gonna have to remove something for our plate. So it's an either or situation. And so they get back to what we're to be about. I say this, there's always good, better, best. And every family, I think once a month, families should sit down and they should evaluate based on their priorities, what are we doing? What's good and what's better and what's best? And let's get rid of some good stuff and get to some best stuff. You should have a mission statement about your family. What what, what are we actually trying to do here? Besides, just feed our kids and take the old crusty sponge and get their face clean. What what are we actually trying to accomplish here? And are we doing it well? In a marriage, you should do that. At work, you should do that. What are our priorities? And once you establish your priorities, here's what it does for you. It helps you make decisions. Because then when you have your priorities, you can just start running everything through your priorities. Hey, does this help our priorities? Is this the best thing we should be doing? Right? Right? And if it's an either or situation, we can only do one of these things, then you say, which one does our priority the best? And you choose that. I do that all the time. So I had an invitation uh, to do the speaking at the Dove Fest. So it was like Jeremy Camp and Mercy Me and Crowder. You know you've arrived when it's just Crowder, right? Not the Dave Crowder band or... Dave Crowder, just Crowder. Who's coming? Crowder's coming. Woo, all right? So I'm like, hey, that'd be kind of cool. You see Crowder. So I'm, I'm like, yeah, man, that's awesome. When is it? When, 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 when is it gonna happen? And they said, well, it's this date. And that was the same day that I was scheduled to teach at our family camp over at Sunset Bay. So for me, it's an either or there, right? And I have a very, very good priority list. And the priority is this. It's Edgewater first. I don't care what opportunity comes. Now, if it doesn't conflict with anything with Edgewater, no I'll take it, but it's Edgewater first. And I said, no, I can't do it. Why not? I'm teaching our family camp. You're teaching your family camp. Dude, look at this opportunity. I don't care. I'm teaching my family. I wanna be there with them. That's my priority, right? So I had this opportunity just recently to go teach Easter weekend at another church, big church, great opportunity. And the same thing, I said, no, I can't do that, man. Why? Because I'm called to Grants Pass. This is my city. This is the place I love. This is where my priorities are. Now, if it's an either or, man, I'll choose it. But if it's Easter celebration with my family, in my city, with my people, watching them get baptized, I'm sorry. This is where I'm gonna be, right? It makes it so easy then. You just make decisions. Hey, priority, run them through that. Yes, no, yes, no. It actually simplifies your life to have priorities. They have it. We won't give up preaching And the word, we're not gonna give those up. And I've watched pastors who I call, they go for um, soup kitchens and sex trafficking, right? Those kind of ministries, which are so good and so necessary, but they do it at the expense of preaching the word. And I watch their churches flounder. I say, you can't do that. Man, if you can do preaching the word plus sex trafficking, great, plus soup kitchen, great. But if it comes in either or, you don't give up preaching the word. Not in my position. So important to do that. And to be honest, the apostles were great preachers. They were terrible waiters. That's why they had this problem, right? A waiter gives you what you want. What would you like today, sir? Hmm. Trout almondy and a light Dijon mustard sauce. And a chocolate milkshake. Coming right up. They give you what you want. Preachers give you what you need. So I can just see Peter up there, right? Widows are coming along and they're like, hey, I'll take some gravy on that. Nope, no gravy for you. Veggies, because you're getting a little thick. Move down the line. What? He called me thick, I can't believe it, Peter, right? That's what preachers do, they make terrible waiters. So they're out. You can't do this anymore, man, you're hurting the widows. Peter, get out. Humility, humility is saying, I'm over my head here. That's what humility says. I I can't do this. I'm not doing it well. I'm hurting people at this. I gotta get out. Humility says that. Gets back to your priorities, right? Fools do this. So I'll give you an example. Um, Two and a half months ago, whenever it was, James Dennis was filling in I went to the 8 a.m. service with my family. I'm sitting down, enjoying it, loving it, getting ready, got my Bible out. When a doorkeeper comes up to me, he's like, Matt, come here. Now I'm thinking you get me because there's a Bible problem because that's my priority. So I grab my Bible and I'm following the doorkeeper up and we come to the back of the office over at the 8 a.m. and there's a dude slouched over in his chair. (laughs) His face is white and he has no pulse. And I remember I'm standing there with my Bible thinking, I don't know if this is exact. Should I preach? Ezekiel, dead bones. Dead bones rise. Come on. Right? I was like, what do I do with my Bible right now? All right. Praise God. This nurse, Faye, who had just gotten off her shift and doesn't want me to come to the 8 a.m., was at the 8 a.m. She just jumps in, man. And she starts CPR in him. And I'm like watching his face go from white to flushed and his eyes open. I was like, ah! Yeah. Oh man. Oh. okay. Okay. Breathe. You <laughs> prayed. It was amazing. Now here, here's what pride would do. I got it. Somebody Google what to do when a man has no pulse and show me the video. Okay. Let's see. All right. What do you call that? A funeral. That's what's going to happen. Humility says, I, I'm over my head here. Somebody with some expertise needs a help right here. And it's not me. That's what these guys are doing. It's humble. And they're really, really awesome about it. I love that, right? You gotta know who you're supposed to be. You are fearfully and wonderfully made who you are supposed to be. Like God never looks in the mirror at you and wishes you were somebody else. And too often what happens in the ministry is we're looking in the mirror and we're wishing we were somebody else. And God's like, Why? I made you the way you're supposed to be, okay? So now these guys get back to, this is what we're supposed to do. This is what we're called to do and we're gonna stick with it. And then number three, they gave opportunity. Choose out seven guys, right? This is uncharted territory for the church. There's no Old Testament passage to go to like, hey, turn to that passage when the Hellenists complained about the Hebrews and let's look and see what they did in Leviticus. It's uncharted territory. They're like, Jesus, we don't know what to do here what are we supposed to do? So they raise their hands and they say, we need help. Okay, when you don't know what to do, a really good first step, raise your hand and say, I don't know what to do here. Let's pray, let's seek the Lord because I don't know what to do here. And then these guys say, we want these kind of leaders, good reputation, full of God's spirit and wise. You know what wise is? Wise just simply means knowing how to get things done. proverb style. Like this isn't gonna be the group that's gonna be like, hey, where do we go shopping at? Hey, what should the menu be? Hey, how do you clean those tables? This is a group of seven people that will be like, we got it, you guys are free to do what you're supposed to do and we're gonna do what we're supposed to do. Just wise, awesome people. Brilliant, right? And then, then here's what's amazing. These guys' shoes big. Philip and Stephen will outshine 10 of the apostles. They'll get more press, more Bible time, more stuff than 10 of the apostles and they're not threatened by it. No, we like big people. We like talented people. I've said this before to staff, to the pastors. If there comes a better preacher than me, I'll step out. No problem, man. You're better at this, you do it, you take it. I'll give you the baton, run hard. And there's gonna come a time like that. There's gonna come a time when I'm old and I'm done. And then at that point, I just need to hand the baton and say, it's your turn now and step out of the way. That's what these guys do. Hey, you're bigger, no problem. Go, run, we love you guys going. And then it says this, they picked out from among them. All seven guys are Hellenists. The problem was a Hellenist problem. The solution came from among the Hellenists, right? You guys are closest to it. You know this intimately. This is your culture. This is, you understand it. You solve it. I love that. This idea here drives me when it comes to church. It's called the priesthood of believers. That among us are leaders and gifted people that God has given talents and experience and wisdom to. And if they're released and given opportunity, great things happen, brilliant things happen. It's the first message I ever preached at Edgewater. It was called finding your lane. And it's this idea Paul gives in 2 Corinthians 10, 13. He says, I've got a lane and I'm gonna run in my lane and I'm not gonna let somebody push me out of my lane. And all of you have your lanes that you're supposed to run in and don't let anybody push you out of your lane. Because what happens when someone who's running the 400 meter gets pushed out of his lane? They're disqualified. Like there's good works that God has for you, You, your unique giftings, callings, experience that only you can run in. And that was the first message. And what happens too often is this. We move from the priesthood of believers to what I call the professional church. Professional church is this. Only the pros get a minister. You know Greek? You know Hebrew? What's your degree? Right? That idea that only pros do ministry. And what happens then is this: it, it, it's we become the movie Wally. Who's in the movie Wally? The rest of you just pray and read your Bible. Awesome. Keep it up. I'll give you what Wally's about. We've trashed Earth, right? A giant corporation makes people overconsume. Maybe it's Walmart. Seems like Walmart might be Amazon destroys earth, everyone gets on a spaceship called the Axiom, they go out for 700 years. On this spaceship, robots do everything. And so the people just become these food bubbles. Like they just drink Slurpees and they're on their hovercrafts. One guy falls off of his hovercraft and what happens? A robot has to come and put him back on his hovercraft so he takes off. to me that's what happens in pro-church. You guys don't get to use your gifts and your talents and instead of being usable, you just kind of start to hmm, atrophy right? Instead, here's what's supposed to happen. It's Proverbs 14:4. Four. It says this. It says that where there are no oxen, the barn stays clean. Pro-church can be clean, no mistakes. Woo, brilliant. But then it says this, but there's strength with the oxen. You can have a really crispy, clean ministry, no mistakes, no problems, no Acts chapter 6, but you miss out on this incredible strength that God has put into all of you guys. I'll give you a factoid. Remember the show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Which is such a ridiculous question. No, thanks, I'll still just make minimum wage for the rest of my life. Nah, I don't want that. Love struggling, paying my bills. It's awesome. I pray more. No, please. Right? So in that, you had these lifelines. Two of them were, ask an expert, ask the crowd. So a guy went, did research on it. And this is what he was trying to find out. How often is the expert right versus how often is the crowd right? The experts were right 65% of the time. The crowd was right 91% of the time. It's called the wisdom of crowds. That there are tons of wisdom right out in here, untapped. We don't want experts at Edgewater. We want you guys because you're smarter and you're better and you're in and among, and you know it. Yeah, that's what we want. And that's exactly what they're doing right here. And this theology drives what we do. Do you know that? So here's the biggest question I get from people new to Edgewater. Why do you do communion like you do communion? Right? Have you been to a church that does communion like us? The pros don't hand it out, do they? What happens here? We just say, hey, if you want to serve, we believe there's wisdom out there. Stand up, serve the body. Here's what's amazing. In the nine and 11, in less than three minutes, 600 people get communion by non-pros. Just people grabbing a tray, just random people grabbing trays and passing them out. It's a miracle. Every single Sunday it happens. And we've had just the craziest people stand up and do communion. We had this guy, He came in, I saw him when he first came in because he was making a statement. He had this big black shirt on with a giant neon pot leaf on it. Okay, he was trying to make a statement, right? And I'm like, no problem, man, you're welcome here. No problem. We have no dress code here. No problem. So message is done, opportunity is to serve. He comes up, wants to serve the body. So he grabs a tray, starts to pass it out. I keep my eye on him. I'm like, hmm, like, look out. Don't drop any edibles in there. That was crazy communion today, man. I saw Jesus. Ah, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have done that. Man. When I go unscripted, it's always dangerous, but. So I'm watching him and he's, he's passing out communion. It was so interesting. At first he's like standing like this. And then after a while he, he started doing this. Like just kind of like trying to cover his leaf. Because I think in his heart, he's like, maybe I came here with the wrong idea. Maybe I come with the wrong agenda. And and in that moment of service to the body, he was convicted. I love that. That's strong church to me. And, And then the leaders, like pros don't lead communion. Why don't the pastors and elders lead communion? Oh, we will from time to time. But I always say, show me in the Bible where it says only pros... Only pastors, only elders can lead communion. Because if you show me it, man, I I wanna be biblical. And what I mean by that is, I wanna do what the Bible says. I don't wanna do more than what the Bible says. It's called legalism. I wanna do actually what the Bible says. If it doesn't say pros should do communion, then I wanna say, I wanna find people of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and wise to lead us in communion. It's the body being the priesthood of believers. Because it's strong and brilliant. Then the ladies, a couple of years ago, actually like ten, came to me and they're like, "Hey, you know, it just feels like there's not enough for ladies to do here. We need a ladies ministry." I'm like, "I, I don't think it's me. I don't think I'm called to that. As great as it might be, I just feel out of my element. Uh, yeah, that's not in my priority list. I'm pretty sure." So they say, "No, no problem. We'll take it." And they started run with this thing and it turned into Women's Fellowship Monday. And out of that came what we call the Titus Two Ladies. I'll say after 12 years at Edgewater, the Titus Two Ladies is the best ministry we have at Edgewater. Hands down, they do the, they're all volunteer, just wisdom of crowd, preachers of believers. They do the most impacting things week in and week out. It's brilliant. It's well-run. It's incredible because it tapped into something. They're running in their lane. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. We started hearing about firewood problems that widows are having trouble getting firewood. It's hard to even find people to deliver firewood. On top of that, it's really expensive. So a group of men said, We'll, we'll take care of it. And a guy said, I got like 12 acres full of Madrone. Come. And so now on a random Saturday, 30 to 40 guys will show up on this land with chainsaws and wood splitters and axes and mauls and big trucks and they'll like cut up and chop 10 cords of wood. And a miracle happens every time they get out there. Nobody gets hurt. Chainsaws and gas and trucks and axes, and nobody gets hurt. It's like, oh God, you must've been there. (laughs) And they're just saying, hey, we wanna do this. I love that. That's what they say. Choose from among you. Choose from among you. And then here are the results. Verse seven. The word of God increased. They stuck with their priority. The number of disciples multiplied greatly. It was increasing in verse one, now it's multiplying. And a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. The longer I'm in ministry, the more I'm seeing that Jesus is able to take verse one problems and bring verse seven solutions. That over and over throughout the Bible, when there's a big problem, be ready for a big solution. Moses back to the Red Sea. Oh no, what are we gonna do? Pharaoh's coming down. Oh no, what are we gonna do? Miracle. David comes home, city is burned down. Kids, wife, gone, kidnapped. Oh no, his own people that he'd raised up and trained them now wanna kill him. Oh no, what are we gonna do? Brilliant miracle. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego staring into the fiery furnace. Oh no, this is not good. And not good, that's hot, and we're flammable. And then Jesus shows up. Daniel and the Lion's Den. Over and over. In Acts, they're throwing, the apostles are thrown into prison so many times. Like it becomes their motel. Like they have their own room. Like, hey, go to the apostles' room. Right? That's what, and, and so often what happens in jail is just this miracle happens. Over and over, I'm seeing, you know what? Problems are just an opportunity for us to refocus on the solution, which is Jesus. And it gives him opportunity to help us. That's what happens. Personally, you gotta know that, right? So what do we call the Friday before Easter? Why is it called Good Friday? Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> if you could Marty McFly it and go back to the future and, and show up with the 11 on that original Good Friday, you'd be like, hey guys, Good Friday. They'd be like, what? Jesus, who we thought was Messiah has been nailed to a tree. One of our own betrayed him and went and hung himself. I denied him three times. We all ran away from him. What are you talking about? Good, this is the worst day ever. Then you'd say, wait a second, because in three days, he's gonna rise again. And in 50 days, the Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you and you, denier, you're gonna preach a message and 3,000 people will get saved. And this thing called the church that's gonna be birthed, it's gonna change the Roman government the oppressive, demonic, satanic Roman government is going to be converted. It's gonna be called the Holy Roman Empire. That's how big of an impact you're gonna have. The whole world's gonna be turned upside down. And the best news of all in this city called Grants Pass will be this church called Edgewater. <laughs> right? Because it's 2020 hindsight. And for the believer, I don't care how bad your Friday is, Sunday's coming. That's what the Bible says. For we know that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. I don't care what your Friday was, Sunday's coming. That no matter what your verse one was, verse seven can come. When we trust Jesus and look to him, he's able to take the raw of this world and turn it into tove. That's the theme of the Old Testament. He redeems and he renews. And when we take communion, that's what we remember. Your brokenness, your spent blood on Friday brought about resurrection, rebirth, renewal, redemption for you and me. We celebrate that, we drink that. So Jesus, this day, I pray for those that had a terrible Friday. Maybe because they betrayed or they denied or they sinned in some way or someone sinned against them and hurt them, or church hurt them. I pray that in this moment that we hold these elements that you said, take, eat, this is my body. Drink, this is the new covenant established in my blood. I pray that there might be a resurrection of hope and power and renewal in our hearts that we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you defeated the grave, you can transform any Friday into Sunday. And we would eat and drink of that hope. And I ask this in your name, amen.